Okay. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Isn't it lovely? Just enjoy Jesus, eh? Yeah, it's awesome. I really love it. Really love it. Hallelujah. I've got bits of paper area all over the place. So, okay. Hallelujah. I want to read a couple of verses from Isaiah, uh, chapter 29, 13, and 14. Incredible verses, actually, yeah. these. When you start looking at them, kind of struck me really hard when I looked at them. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Hallelujah. These people. God hates fake. He hates fake. They come near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. American tourist was traveling in Limerick and he came across a little antique shop and he was lucky enough to pick up for a mere 75 pound the skull of St. Patrick. <laughs> Included in the price was a certificate of the skull's authenticity signed by St. Patrick himself. <laughs> Ten years later the tourist returned and he went back to Ireland and he came to this antique shop and he asked him if he had any more bargains. The guy said, I've got the very thing for you. It's a genuine skull of St. Patrick. <laughs> you swindler, said the American. You sold me that 10 years ago and he produced the skull that had been sold to him, adding, they're not even the same size. You have it all wrong, said the Irishman. This is the skull of St. Patrick when he was a little lad. <laughs> God hates fake. Being real is hard to find. Here is a bunch of people who have come near to God, but they're coming on a pretense basis. Sammy Sosa was one of the greatest baseball players, along with people like Babe Ruth. And uh, he had an incredible batting average until he was booted out of a game in July 2003, when it was discovered he was using a corked bat. He hit the ball and the bat broke, revealing the evidence inside of the cork. He apologized, said he'd simply picked up the wrong bat. He had 78 of them to choose from. But most people, if they didn't belong to the Chicago Cubs, didn't really believe him. Some hitters would drill out the center of the bat, it's hardwood, and then they'd fill it with cork. And the result is the bat retained its hitting power, but it became lighter and easier to swing. And some experts have actually said there's no real evidence there's any advantage, but there we go. That was a guy called Sammy Sosa. See, the outside looked good, but the inside was a different story. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of rules made by men. God's operation with us his way of dealing with us is not external. It's internal. He operates at the heart level with us. Now, we are completely different as people. We tend to be very taken up with external. So, you know what kind of car you drive, what house you have, what bank balance you have, and all those sort of things. 
position, social standing, prestige, popularity, prosperity. That's the things we value. Out there, that's the things you value. Don't tell me that you haven't sort of sidled up to somebody who's driving a Porsche and sort of, well, sidled up to Porsche, not the person, but you know. Because <laughs> it's something. But we shouldn't strive after these things because externals have a habit of being false. There were some Charlie Chaplin look-alike contests being held and Charlie Chaplin, being a practical joker, decided he would enter the contest <laughs> and see how he got on. After deliberating long and hard, the judges unwittingly awarded Char Chaplin the third prize <laughs> behind two imposters. So you can't tell the fake from the real by the outward appearance. And that's why God picks the internal and the Bible says the Lord does not look on the outward appearance, on the outward man, but rather he looks on the inward appearance. He looks at the heart. God does not look at the things the man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The trouble about outside things, external things, is they can be so open to deception. The Victorian Albert Museum for years exhibited what they called the overshirt worn by Charles I to keep out the cold on the scaffold when he was going to his death. It was one of their most prized exhibits in the royal collection. And then some expert came along and said, that's not Charles's overshirt, that's a woman's nighty." <laughs> and that was when it was withdrawn from the royal collection. Very easily, external things. Felix Powell, those of you can remember as far back as the Second World War, was one of these guys who wrote really happy songs. He wrote one particular song which went like this, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. And he went on to commit suicide because of depression. Outside, okay. Inside, not so good. And that's why Albert Schweitzer said, the tragedy of man is what dies inside him while he's still alive. I want to talk about being real. Being real. That's what God wants, being real. He wants you and I to be real. He doesn't want us to be fake. He doesn't want us to be, you know, pretending. He doesn't want us like these people. These men, people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What I notice about this verse, although these people are pretending and being inauthentic, yet they still want God in their lives. They want God there. And so they're coming near to God. And I find that one of the things is so critical is that people recognize they need God. The trouble is sometimes they play religious games. Albert um, A.W. Tozer was a great guy, prophetic, very strong speaker um, into the situations of his day. And he said this, most men indeed play at religion as they play at games, religion itself being of all games the most universally played. The whole thing is arbitrary. It consists in solving artificial problems and attacking difficulties which have been deliberately created for the sake of the game. It's all but a pleasant activity which changes nothing and settles nothing at last. Let me suggest to you, because I've done this myself, I've played the religious game in my time. And I find there's three ways in which you can play. First of all, you can be nominal. That means basically that a part of your life you give to God, or you have a part of God in your life. Just a part. 
And that's called nominality. Most of your life has got other things going on, but God does have a bit. And then the second thing is giving him a priority, but not as the first priority, just a bit, but not the first bit. That's the second way in which we can be unreal. And the third way is being compartmentalized when we break up our lives into little boxes. God gets Sunday, work gets Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, that kind of thing. Compartmentalizing our life. But I've noticed this and have been there. That's when God broke into my life when I was a student in Newcastle, because I was that way. I found this. Number one, I felt incredibly unhappy, even though I was doing all the things. I used to go back to church in uh, my hometown in Bishop Auckland, where my dad and mum were pastoring, and people thought I was living a great life. Very exciting parties and all that kind of stuff. Deep inside, I was deeply unhappy. But not only was I unhappy, I recognized that I felt something was missing. Yeah, there was lots of activity, lots of things going on, you know. We used to get in the cars and drive down to, um, is it Whitley Bay? Yeah, along the coast, and go swimming in the sea at 10 o'clock at night, and go off to a party after that. It all seemed very exciting, but there was something missing, and I had a lack of peace. And what's more, it was a life lacking in purpose and meaning. It was fragmented until God brought me to himself. What we needed and what I needed was a dose of reality therapy. Now let me tell you this. The best people I've ever come across having given you a reality therapy is kids. A Sunday school teacher was telling a class the story of Good Samaritan in which a man was beaten and robbed and left for dead. She described the situation in vivid detail so her students would catch the drama. And then she asked the class, if you saw a person lying at the roadside all wounded and bleeding, what would you do? A thoughtful little girl broke the hushed silence. I think I'd throw up. That's reality. And I listened to some of the prayers. I've got them down of kids who prayed to God. Dear God, it rained for our whole holiday. And is my dad mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but <laughs> I hope you will not hurt him anyway. Your friend, and I'm not going to tell you my name. <laughs> Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love the people in the world. There are only four people in our family, and I can't do it. <laughs> Dear God, if you watch me in church on Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes. Dear God, we read Thomas Edison made light, but in our Sunday school we learned that you did, so I bet you he stole your idea. <laughs> Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, just want you to know that I'm not just saying that because you're God. <laughs> Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not have killed each other. By the way, you got the biblical story wrong there, but there we are. They maybe would not have killed each other if they'd had their own rooms. It works for me with my brother. Dear God, in school they told us what you do. Who does it when you're on holiday? <laughs> do you, dear God, do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you do, I've got to get my brother real good. <laughs> dear God, my grandpa says you were around when he was a little boy. How far back do you go? God wants reality. Jesus said that he wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the word truth can be 
retranslated as reality. Worship us, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in reality. That's how God wants it. And there's some real reality theory, uh, scriptures in the, in, the, in the New Testament that kind of center this. The verses that we're just quoted from in, in Isaiah 29, they're quoted again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So it takes that second part of the quote. Now have you noticed what's in there that brings reality? It's the cross. We cannot have a relationship with God without the cross being in our lives. It's impossible. You can't have a nice, smooth, fluffy, you know, all singing, all dancing type of relationship with God. We can enjoy our times together and enjoy happy times. But at the end of the day, at the center of our lives, the cross has to be. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why is the cross put in that verse that's being quoted from Isaiah? Well, because Jesus was sent by God to go to the cross. That was his purpose. He was the lamb that John the Baptist talked about that takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who would go and suffer on the cross for us. Why? Because our lives were fragmented and broken. We had lost sight of the real issues, which is right living and joy and peace and purpose. And our activities violated God's holy law of the universe, and therefore there was a penalty upon us. And God so loved us, he didn't want us to go through the penalty. And so he sent Jesus. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross because there was no other way which that penalty could be paid. Jesus wasn't dying on the cross as a martyr. Jesus was dying on the cross as a transaction. The sin that I have committed, you have committed, and generations before us and generations in the future, we're all being placed on Jesus' shoulders as he hung on the cross. The penalty had to be paid. A relationship with the Holy God needed that to be reestablished. That's the reality. If you want to know how to be real with God, you're going to have to have the cross there. I've noticed this. That when we want to move towards God in reality, there always has to be that sense of honesty. No kidology. Church can be the biggest place to have kidology. But it's no kidology. In 1949, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the United Kingdom took place in the Hebrides. Duncan Campbell, the preacher at the center of the revival, later described how it began. Seven men and two women had decided to pray earnestly for a revival. They met in a barn. And at this prayer meeting held in a barn, a young man, one of those seven, took his Bible and read from Psalm 24. Who may stand, sorry, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He then made this comment as he shut his Bible. It seems to me just so much sentimental humbug 
to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting here, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And he then went on to ask God to reveal if his own hands were clean and his own heart was pure. And then something incredibly significant took place. The presence of God swept into that barn, impacted those seven people who were there, and completely impacted them under the power of God. They came to understand that revival is always related to holiness, and that power that was let loose wasn't just for them in that barn. It would break out and go into the parish of which they were part of. In fact, just maybe a mile or so away, there were three men working in a field, and they came under this incredible power of God, and they were found lying on the straw they were working on, unconscious under the power of God. They were lifted out of the ordinary into the extraordinary. They knew that God had visited them, and neither they nor their parish would ever be the same again. Four miles away, two sisters, quite old in their ages, 82 and 84, had been also praying that God would break into their island. And they saw a vision at that time. They saw the churches crowded and youth and young, and, sorry, and youth and the community flocking into the churches. They had a glorious assurance that the community would come toward God. And they had assurance that he would come in his revival power. They then contacted Duncan Campbell the next day and asked him if he'd come and be the preacher at their parish church. When he arrived at the church, it was packed with hundreds more waiting outside who couldn't get in. No one knew how that had come to be. There'd be no advertising. But there were all these people waiting. Within 10 minutes of the service starting, men and women were crying out to God. They were meeting with God in all his holiness. And there was such a sense of the presence of God on that island that a businessman visiting said, the moment I stepped ashore, I was suddenly conscious of the presence of God who was meeting with his people. He wasn't the only one. I could go on with lots of different stories from the Hebridean revival. But like guys going past the islands on their fishing boats would come under the power of God. What was the key? An honest prayer. I love it. It seems to me just so much sentimental humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting here. If we ourselves are not rightly related to God, an honest prayer. Bono, some of you may know him, singer in the band U2. He's a Christian, and he said this, Coolness might help in your negotiation with people through the world, maybe. But it's impossible to meet God with sunglasses on. It's impossible to meet God without abandon, without exposing yourself, without being raw. I want to suggest to us today, that if we want to be real with God, we need to do what I call an unexpurgated prayer. I have to slow that down and break it up because I get stumbling over the word. Unexpurgated prayer means basically a prayer as it really is, warts and all. Let me suggest one to you. God, we confess to you what we really are, broken, unsure, and driven by fear. We are not what others think we are, we are not together, not even close. But you see underneath the wrapper. Yeah. 
You see our dark secrets, our shattered dreams, our battered souls. You see our self-loathing. And you love us anyway. A love that makes no sense. God, forgive us for having to make sense of you before we can trust you. Forgive us for thinking you're like us. Forgive us for making you small and smudged and powerless. Forgive us for imagining you were an institution. God, we receive your love. Help us to love you back by seeing you for who you really are, living one, present help and friend, all-powerful creator, redeemer, savior, healer, spirit, Lord. You want to be real? Maybe for you, you've never ever come to that place where you've surrendered your life fully and said to God, I want you to come into my life. Maybe it's been peripheral. Maybe a bit like I was talking about, nominal or partial or whatever. Well, you can find God in reality today. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Maybe that describes a little bit of what you like. If that's the case, whether this for the first time when you come into the Lord this morning, or whether it's for maybe the, the second or third or fourth time when God's brought his challenge through his word this morning, you know you need to be real, not false, but an authentic person in God, authentic follower of Jesus Christ. If that's the case, I want you to respond to the prayer I've just prayed as we pray and close this message. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? I'm going to read that prayer again. God, we confess to you what we really are. Broken, unsure, and driven by fear. We are not what others think we are. We're not together, not even close. But you see underneath the wrapper. You see our dark secrets, our shattered dreams, our battered souls. You see our self-loathing. And you love us anyway. It makes no sense. Just, Lord, forgive us for having to make sense of you before we will trust you. Forgive us for thinking you like us. Forgive us for making you small and smudged and powerless. Forgive us for imagining you were an institution. God, we receive your love. We receive your love. Help us to love you back by seeing who you really are, living one present help and friend, all-powerful creator, redeemer, savior, healer, spirit. If that's you this morning and you want to respond to that prayer, something has got inside of you. The claws of the Holy Spirit's conviction are gripping right now. I want to simply ask that you stand where you are in response to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. You may take your seats again. Father, I just pray for each one of my brothers and sisters this morning who are standing before you and have shown their acknowledgement and identification with the prayer we prayed. And the desire above all, Lord, to be real. To be real. 
a real follower of you, an authentic believer. I pray, Lord, that you'll come near by your Spirit. You will come stronger and stronger in this life day by day so they know, Lord, you've seen their hearts and you respond to it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.